Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 210, Sixtus the Fourth. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So unlike last week, our Pope this week is not the nephew of another Pope. And that's going to be a rare occasion for the next couple of episodes. But we will be meeting his nephew again in the future. He was born Francisco de la Rovere. And as I intimated, the last name de la Rovere is going to play a role in our story in the future. But for now, it's the name of a poor noble family in Liguria. When Francisco was a small child, he was often sick, and his mother made a promise to give him to St. Francis if he recovered. So when he turned nine, he was given to the Franciscans to educate. He became a Franciscan friar himself and attended the universities of Pavia and Bologna, rising in the order because of his piety and his theological knowledge. During a large gathering of Franciscans when he was only 20 years old, he was called upon to make an academic speech in Latin in front of all his assembled brethren, and he did so well that the head of the Franciscan order embraced him for his success. He became a noted academic and was so well regarded that Cardinal Bessarion, who we've heard about in the last couple episodes, decided that after hearing Francisco teach, he would send everything he was going to publish to him first to review and edit. Now, his talents caught the attention of the Franciscan higher-ups, as we mentioned, and he became the general of the order in 1464. When he was on his way to a visitation of the house in Venice in 1467, he received a letter that he was named a cardinal by Pope Paul II and was given the title of Cardinal Priest of St. Peter's in Chains. He was well regarded by everyone in Rome as a very pious, learned cardinal. As cardinal, he contributed extensively to theological debates at the time, especially writing a treatise on the Immaculate Conception, which was still a dogma that was up for debate. In August of 1471, after the death of Pope Paul II, there were two competing factions for the papacy, the French Cardinal d'Estroville, whom we have met before, and Cardinal Orsini of the famous Orsini family. Orsini in particular was going to try to use every means possible to get the job, but as has happened in many of these elections, when two competing factions go at each other, they tend to deadlock the conclave and then they turn to a compromise candidate. Cardinal de la Rovere was that candidate. He was pious, intelligent, someone who got along with everyone, and importantly not from a major Roman family or the nephew of a pope, so he's not going to side immediately with one or the other. At the same time, his nephew and personal secretary, Pietro Riario, was at the conclave working behind the scenes and making deals with the cardinals to get his uncle elected. So perhaps it wasn't all about his piety and learning. Regardless, on August 9th, 1471, Cardinal de la Rovere was elected pope, and because the cardinal, the conclave had started on the feast day of St. Sixtus II, he took the name Pope Sixtus IV. So with all that, you have to think this is a good pick, a humble, intelligent Franciscan. He'll make a good and holy pope, not caught up in all the politics and the nepotism and the scandal we found so many times with popes at this uh, era. But you would be wrong. In fact, we have been slowly sliding into a bad time for the papacy. The corruption and moral degradation that will help spark the Protestant Reformation is here. And Sixtus IV's pontificate is not a bright spot in this difficult period. In fact, he helps to drive that view and culture onward. And just to foreshadow, in only two episodes, we'll be talking about Pope Alexander VI, one of the Borgia popes, and in five episodes, we'll be talking about an obscure German priest named Martin Luther. So, how does this promising candidate go so wrong when he's Pope Sixtus IV? Well, to start from the beginning, the Pope was incredibly concerned with promoting his nephews to power and establishing his family as a power center in Italy, 
Within months, three of his nephews were working for him in Rome, and in less than a year, the Pope had promoted two of his young nephews to be cardinals, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere and Cardinal Pietro Riario, whom we met already. Cardinal Riario was only 25, and Cardinal Giuliano was 28 when they were made cardinals. He heaped positions and authority upon these two nephews, along with wealthy situations. And for example, during this time, oftentimes you would be given several different positions as bishops or as uh, deacons or, you know, different benefices in different parts of the church, places that maybe you never would go, but you'd be named the Archbishop of Mainz or the Archbishop of France or something like that, you know, and just to get the income from it. And they got a lot of income and they lived it up. Cardinal Riario in particular was power hungry and he went about in gold clothing and neither of them really practiced chastity nor really tried to hide the fact that they weren't doing so. Cardinal Riario was, in fact, a major player in papal diplomacy, while Cardinal Giuliano served as the general of papal armies at some points. Now, these nephews drove the policy of much of Pope Sixtus IV's pontificate and did so oftentimes in a very negative way. Cardinal Riario lived uh, an extravagant, lash, lavish lifestyle. He spent massive amounts of money, incurred massive amounts of debt, and his lifestyle was so scandalous that contemporaries were absolutely shocked by the amount and degree of his spending. Now, one of the benefits of this spending, however, and this kind of focus on outward, lavish Renaissance lifestyle, was the continued refurbishment of the city of Rome and its beautification. A jubilee year had been declared for 1475 by the previous pope, and to prepare for the mass of pilgrims, the pope decided to clean up the city. This involved a lot of new construction, including the construction of a new bridge over the Tiber to help with the crowds, which is still standing today and is called the Ponte Sisto after the pope. After the Jubilee, he worked to broaden and rearrange the streets and to pave them, which they hadn't been paved, which leads to mud and disease and all sorts of different things. He likewise built onto the Papal Palace, including building a chapel, which at the time was called the Capella Maggiore, or the Great Chapel, but which we know today by the name of the Sistine Chapel, after Pope Sixtus IV. Now, Cardinal Riario's ridiculous lifestyle led to his death in 1474. He just went too hard and went too crazy, and, and that kind of lifestyle eventually catches up with you. But his brother, Girolamo Riario, continued to affect papal policies. The Pope's attention to Girolamo led to one of the major events of the papacy of Pope Sixtus, which is his feud with Lorenzo de' Medici, known to history as Lorenzo the Magnificent, the ruler of Florence and one of the Pope's bankers. Originally, the Pope was on pretty good terms with the de' Medici's, and it's a family who has risen to prominence during this time period and who were ambitious for further triumphs. We'll hear more about them as each episode goes on. However, the Pope's attempt to further the career of Girolamo started a feud with Lorenzo, which would get personal. The Pope wanted to purchase the territory of Imola from Milan for Girolamo to rule, and thrown into the deal was the arrangement of the marriage of Girolamo to the Duke of Milan's illegitimate daughter. Now, this really ticked off Lorenzo. He had wanted to expand Florentine interests into Imola and had been making preparations to do so for some time. So he refused directly to finance the acquisition and tried to block Pope Sixtus completely in order to obtain Imola for himself. The Pope reacted by canceling his banking arrangement with Lorenzo and turning to the competing family in Florence, the Pazzi family. Tensions began to mount as Lorenzo rebuked and challenged the Pope, and the Pope grew more and more hostile towards Lorenzo. The Pope then appointed a candidate for the Archbishop of Pisa, which is near Florence, um, a man named Francesco, Francesco Salvati, which he knew would like be a slap in the face to Lorenzo. 
and then he refused to include anyone from Florence in the College of Cardinals at all. Girolamo Riario and the Pazzi family decided that the only thing that they should do would be to overthrow Lorenzo completely, and they plotted to assassinate him. They roped in Archbishop Salvati, and then they took their plan to Pope Sixtus. The Pope agreed with a plan to dethrone the Medicis, but he refused to condone murdering anyone. He was pretty forceful on this latter point. He reportedly told the conspirators, On no conditions will I have the death of any man. It is not our office to consent to the death of any, and even if Lorenzo is a villain and has wronged us, I in no way desire his death. What I do desire is a change in government. The conspirators were like, yeah, okay, but what if it does happen? You would still be fine with it, right? And the Pope was pretty forceful. He didn't want Lorenzo killed, but he was equally asserted that he did want him removed. And he kind of made it clear that he would be kind to anyone who helped remove Lorenzo from power, you know, perhaps even with wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, if something bad were to happen to him. So the conspirators took this as a green light, even though he did say, like, don't kill anyone. But they took it as a green light, and they planned on just straight up killing Lorenzo. And regardless, they now only had to look for an occasion. And the occasion came when the grandnephew of Pope Sixtus, the nephew of Girolamo Riario, the 18-year-old Cardinal Raffaele Riario Sansoni, came to Florence for a visit in 1478. The young cardinal was not in on the plot, but the conspirators used his visit to execute their plan. They would act during a high mass at the Duomo in Florence, which was said in the presence of the cardinal, as well as Lorenzo and his brother Giuliano de' Medici. So, as soon as the gospel was over and the liturgy of the Eucharist began, the conspirators rushed at the de' Medici brothers. They stabbed and killed Giuliano there in the cathedral and then tried to get at Lorenzo, but aided by his men, he was able to ward off their blows and escape relatively unscathed into the sacristy. At the time, at the same time, the Archbishop of Pisa, Archbishop Salvati, tried to take control of the government building and encouraged the people of Florence to rise up against Lorenzo. It failed. No one was on board with this coup. The conspirators were captured. Archbishop Salvati was hanged from the windows of the palace. The Pazzi family were basically killed off by the angry people of Florence and by the de Medici's. Those who fleed the city were hunted down. Even one made it as far as the Turkish-controlled Constantinople, and he was sent back uh, to face it up. And the de Medici's basically removed any indication of the Pazzi family from the buildings and displays of the city of Florence, removing their coats of arms from anywhere they were in the city. Cardinal Raffaele, who had no idea that this would happen, it was just this 18-year-old kid who happened to be a cardinal and happened to be in Florence, was still placed under arrest by Lorenzo. Now, Pope Sixtus did not react well to the failure of this coup. He excommunicated Lorenzo. Partially, the main reason was because uh, of his killing of Archbishop Salvati, which seems to upset the standard view of how um, clerics are to be tried for crimes. But it was really about the whole situation. He, he forbade the entire city from receiving the sacraments, which means he placed it under interdict, interdict in particular for the murder of Archbishop Salvati. Now, he managed to secure the release of Cardinal Raffaele and bring him back to Rome, but his actions overall merely strengthened the de' Medici family's position in Florence. It was a total po political, not to mention moral, disaster for the Pope. The cardinals counseled the Pope to be merciful, 
But spurred on by his nephew Girolano, the Pope declared war on Florence and sought the aid of his ally, King Ferrante of Naples. King Ferrante had come to Rome earlier in the Pope's time and had done every and the Pope had done everything he could to court his favor. He included having all his cardinals greet him at the gates and walk him to St. Peter's, and he met with him several times, sometimes in secret even, to, to build this alliance. Now, Ferrante didn't think this war was a good idea per se, but he went along with it, hoping that he might be able to snag Siena away from Florence and make it part of his own territory. Florence called on the French for help, who were happy to try and hurt the papacy and their standing in the world. Now, the Naples had the better part in the war. They did take Siena, and they engaged the Turks to attack Venice so the Venetians couldn't help the Florentines out. And once it was clear that Naples had the upper hand, Lorenzo went there in person to negotiate with Ferrante. Ferrante had gotten everything he wanted out of this conflict, and so he was going to be fine with declaring peace, even though Pope Sixtus still wanted war. While this was happening, the Turks turned on Ferrante. They landed a force in Otranto to at the heel of the boot of Italy and captured the town. They demanded that the 800 citizens of Otranto convert to Islam or be killed. When they weren't converted, the 800 were martyred by the Turks on August 14, 1480. They've been beatified recently by Pope Benedict XVI. This invasion of the mainland of Italy by the Turks changed a lot. Now the need for a crusade, which the popes for the last few episodes have been fruitlessly trying to make happen, was felt because Otranto was a real wake-up call. So the Pope sent a fleet of mainly Hungarian soldiers down to help the Spanish and the Neapolitans recapture the city. They were able to do so in 1481, but the desired follow-up attack on the Turks in the Balkans in Albania never really materialized. Now, the Pope's foreign policy is going to continue to cause problems, but before we get there, we need to talk about a couple of mainly spiritual things that he did, some good and some bad. First, he formally annulled the decrees of the Council of Constance that had been never really been adopted by Pope Martin V, but they were still kind of floating out there. Those were the decrees which basically said that the Council was higher than the Pope and that the Council had to be called every so many years. He also helped to reform the Franciscan Order and canonize St. Bonaventure as part of that process. Likewise, in 1477, he promoted the celebration of the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. But the big thing we need to talk about is the Spanish Inquisition, and I bet you didn't expect that. The Inquisition has a bad name for a good reason, but you will have to see it in its context. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella were in the process of reclaiming Spain from the Muslim uh, conquerors in past centuries, and religious unity was seen as an important state necessity as part of that plan. Caught up in what we might call even a, a jingoistic fervor, the people of Spain took out their aggression on all those who were not Catholic, and Jews suffered a lot during this process. Many dealt with the, the persecution that they were uh, facing by converting to Catholicism, at least nominally. Some of it might have been legitimate conversions, but some of them did just to get along. Now, there's a lot of conspiratorial thinking and real anti-Semitism in the crown's view of these converts. And so they asked permission from the Pope to form a tribunal to help test to see if they actually practice the faith or not. Pope Sixtus gave them the power to do so, and the Spanish Inquisition was born. It was not primarily a papal affair, but more of a nationalistic one. But the Pope had authority over it spiritually. And then if someone was um, condemned, they were handed over to the national government to be punished. But it's, uh, it's injustices and failures accrue to both the church and the state. Sixtus IV himself pretty early on began hearing about the injustices of the Inquisition, the way that people were being treated, the torture they were undergoing, and he repeatedly responded to these complaints by writing to the Spanish and telling them to get their act together. It wasn't the end, per se, that he disagreed with. He did want people to see if they were actually practicing their faith, but it was 
more the brutal and immoral means that the inquisitors used. As an effort to clean up the abuses of the Inquisition, the Pope appointed Father Tomas uh, Torquemada, a Dominican priest, to be the Grand Inquisitor to give him authority to help clean up abuses in the Inquisition. Now, those abuses did continue, and the Pope seems to have been willing to go far, not have been willing to go far enough to stamp them out completely. So it's another stain on his pontificate that this was allowed to continue. Now back to another disaster, foreign policy. The Pope was still technically at war with Florence, but a de facto peace with Florence came about after the Turkish attack on Otranto. But in 1481, the Turkish Sultan died and the Ottomans were divided over the succession. So war broke out in the north with the Venetians, who no longer had to fear the Ottomans, and declared war on the Italian city of Ferrara. They were supported or even encouraged by Pope Sixtus and his nephew, Girolamo Riario, who, now that he had Imola, wanted more territory in northern Italy and thought a combined offensive with Venice would help him secure more influence. But eventually the Pope turned on the Venetians, who seemed to be winning in Ferrara, and sent envoys to get them to come to peace terms. They didn't want to do this, so the Pope then put Venice under interdict and declared war against all of them. Meanwhile, the Colonna family, who hated the Della Roveres, used this as an opportunity to attack the Pope and their other hated family, the Orsinis, he promised to spare the life of one of the Colonna, uh, Odo Colonna in 1484 if he would surrender, but then he killed him anyway, so that's a bad sign. And all this chaos and conflict on the Italian peninsula, which even I can't keep track of, which factions fighting against which, eventually died down, and peace was made with Venice in August of 1484, expressly against the Pope's wishes. Pope Sixtus was himself sick at the time, and his anger and his fear aggravated his sickness. He died on the evening of August 12, 1484. He was a Renaissance prince more than a pope, and his papacy was not a proud moment for the church. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by Pope Innocent VIII, and we will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Habemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcasts on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.